You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Google reports North Korean social engineering of vulnerability researchers. Anonymous resurfaces, maybe, and tells Malaysia's government it's not happy with them. Notes on false credentialism and workforce development from the National Governors Association Cyber Summit. Kevin McGee from Microsoft Canada on the launch of the Rogers Cybersecurity Catalyst at Ryerson University to support Canadian cybersecurity startups. Our guest is James Stanger from CompTIA on their ultimate DDoS guide. And does America need a cyber force? Some think so. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, January 26, 2021. Yesterday evening, Google's threat analysis group reported that a North Korean threat actor had been quietly and plausibly engaged in social engineering of vulnerability researchers working for security companies. The campaign seems to represent a significant advance in subtlety and craft on Pyongyang's part. The threat actors created research blogs and multiple Twitter persona, which they used to discuss various publicly known vulnerabilities, often claiming successful development of -of proof-of-concept exploits. The blogs even attracted and published guest posts from legitimate researchers. It was, as the Register writes, a long con. The evident goal was espionage. The apparent method was to cultivate trust and then induce researchers to unwittingly install malicious code and an in-memory backdoor that beaconed to DPRK-controlled servers. The compromise was accomplished through unidentified mechanisms when the victims visited one of the threat actor's sites. One known way in which victims were compromised involved their being induced to collaborate on a research project. According to Bleeping Computer, the threat actors would share a visual studio project that included the proof-of-concept exploit they represented themselves as working on. It also included a malicious hidden DLL. Google says, At the time of these visits, the victim systems were running fully patched and up-to-date Windows 10 and Chrome browser versions. The register points out that the campaign wasn't perfect. And there's a funny meme in circulation showing dear successor Kim Jong-un's face superimposed over Steve Buscemi's face above the legend, how do you do, fellow zero-day researchers? But give them credit. As social engineering goes, this one is better than the calls threatening arrest for abuse of your social security number or the email from the barrister asking if you'd be willing to serve as the heir to an intestate gazillionaire. So, fellow zero-day researchers, engage with caution. 
Anonymous has apparently resurfaced and it's interested in Malaysia, if that is the people who posted a video excoriating Kuala Lumpur for allegedly poor government cybersecurity practices really do represent the anarchist collective. Anarchist collectives are by their nature inherently difficult to identify or authenticate or indeed even individuate. Their name is Legion, as it were. Anywho, the video includes an implicit threat of data theft and doxing. Yahoo Finance says the government is taking the threat seriously. In fairness to Anonymous, insofar as it's possible to be fair to an anarchist collective, this sort of doxing under a finicking, pretextual fig leaf of stuffy devotion to best security practices hasn't really been the Anonymous style. But who knows? Full-scale cyber war isn't likely because Anonymous isn't that big a playa in cyberspace. But there's a real possibility of nuisance attacks. Their tweet, for what it's worth, is shadow broker-esque in diction. Quote, This is a wake-up call for the government of Malaysia, they say, adding... It's have been a long time that we are silent. Be prepared. We are legion. We do not forgive. We do not forget. Expect us. That's expect us, not expect U.S., as the capital letters they use might suggest. Still, again, who knows? Any Dr. Seuss scholar knows that the Lorax speaks for the trees, but who really can be said to reliably speak for Anonymous? We attended last week's virtual cybersecurity summit organized by the National Governors Association. Much of the issues the participants talked through were familiar enough, touching as they did on the importance of cooperation, not only among the states, but between state and local government, with the federal government, and finally, with the private sector. There was also considerable attention devoted to workforce development. Our stringer on the virtual spot thought one of the issues they addressed was particularly interesting— the way in which a kind of false credentialism can stand in the way of filling jobs with people who are well able to handle the work. CompTIA CEO Todd Thibodeau mentioned that university preparation is often either misaligned or incomplete with respect to what the industry says it needs, and that universities might do well to listen to the private sector and take advantage of all the work the private sector's done on the issue. But there's another bottleneck in the talent pipeline, too, and this one is on the side, largely, of industry. Thibodeau called it a confidence gap, the widespread assumption or sense that all cybersecurity jobs require deep STEM expertise and training. He encouraged employers to give applicants who don't have those a look. Alternative credential programs, many of which have appeared over the last few years, can deliver solid candidates. And in Thibodeau's view... It doesn't take a four-year degree to switch fields into cybersecurity. We might add some historical perspective. When the battleship USS California was sunk at Pearl Harbor until she could be raised and repaired, it was found that the musicians in her band showed a surprising aptitude as codebreakers. They were temporarily assigned to Fleet Radio Unit Pacific, where they served with distinction. Look for the equivalent in cybersecurity. And finally, once you do get the right people, how do you organize them? One of our favorite sailors, retired Admiral James Stavridis, a friend of the show, has an op-ed in Bloomberg in which he argues that the solar wind supply chain compromise and presumably the other related campaigns by probably Russia's Cozy Bear show that the U.S. isn't properly organized for cyber conflict. He thinks that Space Force, whose creation he approves, suggests a model for cyberspace, 
A new military service, call it Cyberforce, should do for operations in cyberspace what Space Force promises to do in outer space. As the Admiral puts it, quote, The administration should also create a full-fledged cyberforce. The Donald Trump administration correctly created a Space Force, recognizing how much of national security relies on the ability to operate in space, and that securing it requires specific skills concentrated in a single organization. Likewise, we are overdue for an elite, independent branch of the armed forces in which all the personnel wake up every morning thinking about defending the nation in cyberspace. End quote. Maybe he's right, although we're agnostic on the issue. But if there ever is a cyber force, we look forward to watching its culture develop. That's the fun part, and roles and missions be damned. Space Force calls its troopers guardians. The inevitable choice for cyber force would seem to be hacker, as in hacker recruit, hacker, hacker first class, and so on. In fairness, cyber force probably ought to go into the Department of the Army, since the departments of the Navy and the Air Force already have two services, respectively the Marine Corps and the Space Force. And bonus, it could there make its contribution to the Army's rich tradition of demotic terms of disapprobation, where the Army Airborne has its legs, a derisive reference to non-airborne foot-mobile troops who don't arrive by parachute. Cyberforce could have, what, no hats, maybe? and the equivalent of the combat troops REMF, which acronym we won't unpack because we're a family show, but which is used to refer to judge advocates general, headquarter clerks, and comparable miscreants. Well, that one could be non-hacker. And an incompetent hacker, the equivalent of the Army's BOLO? Well, obviously, it's SKID. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using Identity Orchestration, 
Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. DDoS attacks continue to be an ongoing issue for cybersecurity professionals, a a bit of a cat-and-mouse game as adversaries grow their botnets and defenders strengthen their mitigation capabilities. Dr. James Stanger is Chief Technology Evangelist with nonprofit trade association CompTIA, and he joins us now. James, welcome to the CyberWire. Hey, thanks, man. It's great to be here. Appreciate your time. Well, let's start off with a little level setting here. I mean, where do we find ourselves when it comes to the the state of things in regard to DDoS attacks? You know, in some ways, uh, I swear when it comes to DDoS attacks, we seem to kind of reinvent our uh, susceptibility to them. Uh, In other Mm -hmm. words, just as I remember years ago, there was the Robert Morris Internet worm. Now we're talking about primordial times back in the 80s (laughs) when, you know, he accidentally or accidentally on purpose, who knows what happened released this thing and, and and it went along and crashed, you know, about a quarter to a third or more of the known internet at the time. Well, then in the, in the 90s, late 90s, DDoS attacks became big. And now we have the botnets, we have the volumetric attacks, we have, you know, the ability of some of these uh, pretty sophisticated outfits to send even small amounts of traffic that are designed to crash servers. So it's interesting to see how uh, these things are cyclical. It comes and it goes, but it's cyclical. But uh, the patterns are kind of the same, but the the actual volume and the severity of the attack seems to be getting worse. Yeah, I mean, and, and then I think that's really striking as the the techniques on both sides, uh, you know, as, as they, they grow their capabilities, um, I think we're, we're seeing numbers that we would have, a, would have had a hard time imagining just a few years ago. You know, uh, it, it used to be, uh, oh, hey, look at that. We're seeing a lot of sin packets, you know, sin uh, like a sin flood. You know, there's the TCP three-way handshake. And you can take advantage of that uh, by overwhelming a server there or, you know, lots of ping packets, you know, all that. It's gotten so much more sophisticated on the attack side uh, to see how you can, uh, you know, put together hundreds of thousands of millions of uh, unwitting participants in your little scheme that they're just doing things as as they normally would do. And then all of a sudden, uh, just a few packets uh, come from each of those, and then it adds up to a huge attack that, you know, we've seen it bring down uh, Amazon uh, S3. Uh, we've seen it bring down uh, uh, Netflix. We've seen it bring down quite a few things, certainly with the IoT packets. On the mitigation side, it's also interesting to see the more sophisticated approaches. There's big data approaches to crunch all of the data to find out, you know, what the patterns seem to be so you can proactively uh, protect yourself. Uh, we're also seeing a lot of really good third parties out there that can kind of insert themselves in between you and the bad guys to scrub out a lot of those packets. So it's interesting to see uh, both how both sides have become uh, more sophisticated. Where do you suppose we're headed with this? Is this something that, that we're going to get control over or is this something that is here to stay? 
it's here to stay. I see it as a chronic issue that has to be managed uh, rather than something like, because I remember for a while it was like there was a certain mission accomplished attitude. Well, there's no more, you know, we figured out the ping of death. I'm using old examples. Yeah. Or we figured out <laughs> slow loris. We don't have to worry about that so much. We, we've kind of figured out systems have become much more able of handling floods of traffic than they ever were. I mean, uh, nowadays you can simulate using... Uh, Kali Linux or uh, you know Metasploit or whatever uh, HPing three simulate uh, floods of traffic that back in the day would have crashed a Linux or a Windows server of its day. You know, they're much more resilient now, but but again the attackers are able to step up their game each time. So I th I see it as a a slow and steady uh, evolution against the slow and steady evolution of the bad guys. Dr. James Stanger is Chief Technology Evangelist with the nonprofit trade association CompTIA. Thanks so much for joining us. It's fantastic to be here. Thanks again. I appreciate it. And joining me once again is Kevin McGee. He's the Chief Security and Compliance Officer at Microsoft Canada. Uh, Kevin, always great to have you back. Um, I want to chat today about uh, the launch of the Rogers Cybersecurity Catalyst at Ryerson University. Uh, and this is something you're involved with. Can you give us some of the details? What What's going on here and why is it something that's important to you? Personally, uh, and also professionally, I'm very interested in, in the next generation of leaders for our industry and how we develop them. And that, uh, that doesn't mean just within the corporate sense. That's also looking to uh, the startup community and building that, uh, that startup community. And in Canada, we have a, a much smaller startup community than you, you do in the U.S. So we're looking at how best to, to grow and uh, really accelerate, uh, really accelerate those efforts. And what we're seeing is that partnerships between corporations like ourselves, like, um, like Rogers and uh, universities and the startup community are really producing the best results where we come together to provide uh, not only access to talent, access to mentorship, access to uh, applied research and whatnot, uh, and build out that community is, is, is greatly accelerating those, um, those uh, startups and developing that, uh, that talent we need for the next generation of our, le um, our leadership in our industry. So it's a fascinating uh, time to, to be involved in, uh, in this community. And uh, Ryerson partnered with Rogers to launch this this cybersecurity catalyst at the beginning of the uh, the COVID pandemic. It was meant to be a <laughs> physical space, so we had to uh, to work together to sort of pivot to an online space and evolve as well in real time. Can you give us some insights? I mean, what, what's the the general framework that you're using here for to to set up the the partnership between? private and, uh, you know, the educational folks? So Ryerson really approached a number of, of uh, large corporations that had either expertise or whatnot that could could bring to bear and said, you know, how can you help us? And so they run a program uh, that they've established sort of based on a generic entrepreneurship program, and they've uh, they've adapted it to the cybersecurity startups as well. So they have entrepreneurs and residents that are industry folks that, that come in and assist uh, the the companies to uh, to develop in sort of the, um, the generic aspects of business. But then they've uh, created a role called a corporate in residence, where some people like myself or other folks within Microsoft really come in and advise the the companies, much like the entrepreneur in residence, on specific topics that uh, that are interest. And then it also gives an opportunity for uh, for uh, those uh, organizations or those uh, those startups 
to tap into sort of the vast resources. So Microsoft is a $2 trillion company or something like that. We have a, a vast array of resources um, that uh, that we can make available uh, to the startups and really help them accelerate. And if I look back, my first company uh, that I founded in the 90s was based on uh, a Microsoft program that uh, assists a startup by providing free licenses to software and whatnot. And without that help at that early stage, I'm not sure I could have got my company off the ground. So that's what we're looking to achieve with the partnership. And what's in it for you personally? Why, why is this uh, something that you want to invest your time in? So I find it, uh, it's really something that brings uh, energy to my day. So when I, I spend some time with some of the founders, um, I really come out of the call uh, energized and excited. And when you spend, uh, when you spend time with entrepreneurs who are, are really tackling some interesting challenges or something that no one's ever done before, uh, and they're young and they're invested and uh, they're really excited about their work, it, it's a fascinating thing to do. And sometimes little things that you can advise them on or assist them with you know, make an incredible difference because I've made that mistake hundreds of times over my career. Um, they have not yet, so they can benefit from from that wisdom as well. But uh, again, it's, it really is something that I find a great deal of personal satisfaction out of and nothing uh, makes makes me happier than to see uh, these folks either go on to succeed uh, with their with the organization or maybe move uh, around the industry and become leaders in other parts of the organization as well. All right. Well, Kevin McGee, thanks for joining us. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. One tough customer. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Falecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.